Welcome to Mental Health Hour, the podcast. I'm Kat. I'm Kayla. And we're on episode eight, just like that. Just like that. So I know, Kayla, you want to introduce our special guest today. Yeah, we're really, really excited. So today we have Karen Sugro. I'm not going to introduce you properly because I'd love if you do it yourself. But we are really excited to talk about relationships this week because Valentine's Day is coming up and we just want to kind of explore it a little bit with somebody who knows what she's talking about. So Karen, I might let you introduce yourself. Uh, hi, Katrina and Killa, and thanks very much for inviting me on. I do love uh, chatting about all the things, as you well know, and so I'm delighted to be talking about relationships. I am a sociologist and a psychotherapist and an activist and a feminist, and uh, I'm lucky enough to know you guys for the last several years. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. I wanted to kind of start because you wear lots of different hats. And I, I, I wanted to ask you, how do they, how, well, first of all, how did they come about, if you want to start at the beginning? So I suppose I started um, my professional life as a sociologist, and I was lucky enough to get a job in LIT uh, 20 years ago, actually, this month. And um, I taught sociology for, for a number of years. I taught in Cork and Dublin and, and UL, and then I was lucky enough to get the job in, in LIT. And, um, and I've been there ever since, and I love sociology, but I became a little bit disenchanted with its capacity to, it just for me at that time, it didn't reflect the real world. And um, around that time, I, I was really struggling with my own mental health. So I, um, but I didn't know what to do because I, you know, sociology at that time had no language for feelings. We, we didn't measure feelings. We measured social facts, which, you know, feelings were something slightly embarrassing that you never talked about or made reference to ever. So I didn't have the language. So I, but I, I like this will tell you how long ago it was. I had the yellow pages the actual book that you omg yeah and i opened it up under c for counselor because i'd seen online or not online didn't exist then i'd seen on telly that american (laughs) people american people went to counselors so i was like okay so i went c counselor and then there was a pile of names i was like i don't know what these so i read all the names and i i one of them just struck me i just like the sound for names so i went to her for a year and uh, talked about my feelings and felt so much better so quickly that I felt like I need to know how this works because that's mm. that's how my brain works this is witchcraft and I need to know yeah. how this works so I that started me on a very long process of training so I went out to UL and they laughed at me and they said go away sociologist you have to go and do all sorts of, of prep work so I went and did the prep and then I went back to UL and I uh, trained took six years a further six years to train as a psychotherapist and it was the best most transformatory period of my life it really was um, I loved it and I still love it um, and so I was um, practicing as a psychotherapist and teaching sociology for a while and loved it and around and this would have been 2015 2016 2017 so 2015 as you know was marriage equality um 2018 then was repeal 
And uh, in between that period of time, I it, it really kind of landed to me that I was working with people who were profoundly vulnerable and I was doing lots of really nice work in the room with them. You know, we were building relationships and trust and we were exploring all these issues and what sexuality meant and all the rest of it. And then, um, you know, uh, I was saying goodbye to them at the end of the hour and they were going out into a world that told them that there was something wrong with them. And likewise, yeah. With young people who were pregnant and they were coming to me in crisis and, you know, didn't like I would say all, all the things during the hour, but then I'm sending them out into the world at the end of the hour. And at that time, it was a criminal offence in Ireland. Mm. And, you know, the, uh, people had to travel for abortions and abortion services if that's what they chose. So I, I kind of came to a place in my head where it's like, oh, sociology says these things are bad and psychotherapy gives me the tools to deal one-to-one -one with people. But like the people only spend one hour out of the entire week with me. And it's obviously the impact of the entire week is what's bringing them to me each week. So, so then I started kind of into... Uh, looking at ways that I could kind of participate in activism and, you know, change, you know, if, if it's the world that is impacting people and it is, then what can we do about that? And so that kind of pulled me into activism and politics. <laughs> what so, a journey though. It's fantastic. It is brilliant. I'm just thinking my head is spinning, um, even just following that. Okay. This is where I started. This is where it brought me. And now this is where it's throwing me into even if I'm not fully willing to be there, it has to be done. So that's that's really interesting. And I wonder, do you think then, say, when you're working with clients, how does the sociology hat and the activism hat come into the therapeutic room or does it come into the therapeutic room? Or, or what do you think? Is there a relationship between all three? Like, is it? There absolutely is. There absolutely okay. is. And now the, the training that I had for psychotherapy is that you bring yourself into the room, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so it is about building relationships which are authentic between you and the persons there. So the first thing that and, and this requires a lot of like for yourself as the therapist to kind of go, OK, I need to own where I'm at. Mm. So, you know, I'm quite public about my political stance and I do that in a very conscious way so that anybody who comes to me or anybody who wants to work with me therapeutically they're going to know for example that I'm pro-choice when it comes to um, reproductive choices for women yeah. that I'm a intersectional feminist I don't think it would be very fair for anybody to come to me and find me being a feminist and and that's not what they're looking for you know they have to so they have to choose and if I'm ever uh, working with anybody you know I'll the, the idea when you when you are looking for a therapist um, and for anybody listening to, to this, be sure that you shop around and be sure that you ring loads of people, loads and loads and loads of people. And you ring them up and you you talk to them and you get a sense of them and they should, you know, if they're good and they, they know their 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 ethical boundaries they should give you a very strong sense of themselves and then you get to choose what you want to go in because you are the person this is a service so you know that is so I very consciously make sure that everybody knows where I stand and then they can choose to deal with me if they want and work with me if they like the cut of my jib great and if they don't well then that's fab too then when I'm, if people choose to work with me, then I'm bringing in a very strongly feminist stance. 
and um, I, you know, in terms of reproductive choices and reproductive justice, but also in terms of women's role in society, in relationships particularly, and, and that's obviously what um, I'm really eager to talk to you guys about today. But I, I, I would make no, mis no, no bones about it. Um, that is my stance. That's what I bring. And it isn't when you're working with somebody, it's not that I would be saying to anybody, be a feminist. <laughs> yeah. um, not my role. But they need to know that that's where I'm at uh, mm. so that they can feel safe. And that's a really important piece for me. I think yeah. you touched on some really good stuff there, Karen. I think what you said, like we've said in previous podcasts to people, um, you know, like it's like speed dating, trying to find a counsellor, you know, yes. and I know there's that funny element, but I think yes. to take that stance of it's almost like you're interviewing the therapist in a way, isn't it? Because you really need to know, do they know their like, you know what I mean? But you uh, absolutely are. And people don't realize this. They're, the therapists yeah. aren't doing you a favor. You mm. are interviewing them. You choose what you want to 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 work with it's really I mean we 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 have a funny idea about therapy in Ireland and I think it's because we're so kind of we've come late to this space um as a society and uh, and I, to be honest with you I in all things but in this is also I blame the Catholic Church because we the Catholic Church and their ethos around uh, con the confessional and yeah. the relationship between the people and priests and you know there's a narrative out there that that has made us equate that kind of a confessional environment to therapy it's not like that nor mm. should it be like that it is not a confessional it is yeah. a, a professional service that you decide to engage with and then you pay the person and they better know their stuff and they mm. better have their boundaries in place and i have huge concern about the lack of uh, governance over the training of psychotherapy yeah yeah i i agree with you um it's something that we often talk about like we bang this drum all the time not just within our um our crisis service but we we often have to spend a lot of time telling people look don't just pick any counselor don't just go to a service because you've heard about it before yeah but let's actually sit down and go through what's important to you what do you value most and let's find a therapist that kind of matches that um yeah. so so i'm really glad you kind of said that from coming from a psychotherapist it, it oh, adds yeah. weight you you have to do that and in the same way if something gets comes wrong with us physically what do we do we do a bit of research into who the best consultant is mm. um, and we ask around and we get recommendations and then we we might go to them and sometimes you go to this re recommended person and you're like oh, oh i don't like this person that's i don't feel safe here it's the same thing and mm -hmm. i would say to anybody if you if you speak to somebody or even if you go for the first session and you don't click with the person you just never go back yeah, it's really simple you never go back but but don't give up in the same yeah. way that you wouldn't give up trying to find a good consultant you keep looking until you find the person and then that's when the magic happens when the relationship is really good when you trust the person to bring your authentic self then you will do the work but yeah. you have to yeah. keep looking yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I always say this um, to, to friends and family as well. Like I started as a child, I was kind of put into therapeutic spaces for a whole load of behavioral issues that I was having at the time. But I must have gone through, oh, my God, maybe 13 different practicing professionals. And I never spoke. I just didn't like the vibe. I didn't like the way they asked me questions and all this kind of stuff. And it was only actually a few years ago that I found a therapist 
And like you said, it, you described it perfectly. The magic happened yeah. and I could tell this person anything and I was so safe and it was so relatable. And actually, do you know what? I ended up working with that person on another project outside of the therapeutic space. So we had to end our therapeutic relationship there. Um, but I will never forget how safe and how seen I felt in that. So um, I, I love when people do come on and they talk about things like that and coming from you, it carries more weight. Um, so I'm really glad you touched on that. Speaking of safe and seen, what do you make of Valentine's, lads? Well, now you guys wow. know full well that you have just said my trigger words, yeah. Valentine's. <laughs> so, um, you know, you look, you guys know I hate Valentine's Day with the power of thousand songs. So I um, I feel and, and look, this this touches into to all of, of the themes and even uh, Kayla, as you said, about feeling seen and heard and understood and valued and validated in the room with that therapist. That's those things are what we should feel in relationships. Yes. So, you know, we are fed this narrative in our society that there are particular types of relationships that have more status than others. And romantic relationships are given enormous status, enormous. Um, and to the point where we're, we're fed this fairy tale, particularly women, and the fairy tale is something like, you know, you grow up, you do things, but the main aim of everything is to find your other half. Mm. Um, and then you've done life properly. You've won. I mean, that's it. Like you just then you retire behind closed doors and, and you know, you do whatever other halves do. But that is so profoundly toxic. I mean, even the language of the other half implies that you're broken and that there's yes. something wrong with you as a, as a and that you can never have a, a full life without this other person who, by the way, is also broken in that metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, two broken people do not a happy life make, let me just tell you, as a psychotherapist. So even the language, the, the metaphor is the narrative, this idea that there is one way of doing things. And it is to constantly look for, for a relationship. And you are either in a relationship, in which case you're winning, or you're looking for a relationship, but either way, you're performing as you should be. Um, and this is all encapsulated in the utter horror fest of hate that is Valentine's Day. And I feel, I mean, Valentine's Day is about capitalism, it is about heteronormativity, it is about shaming people, particularly women who are not in relationships, and it is overall about coercing people into feeling that the only way they are valid in the world is if they are in a romantic relationship, monogamous, hopefully according to society heterosexual uh, god forbid there be any kind of deviation from what society wants us to do um for women you better also be having kids because it's kind of kind of selfish if you're not and it's pathetic mm -hmm. if you aren't and if you're single you're kind of pathetic and selfish valentine's day encapsulates all of that mm. No, yeah. you've 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 touched on some some good stuff there. Like I even have a few bullet points written down here before it. And I was like, how am I going to work this into the conversation? But you have just done that. You've hit on every <laughs> single one of them. So the 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 other half and how we should then the two halves come together as this one singular unit and together we will take over the world. Um, but also what I what I loved about what you said there was, I suppose the goal is always to for two people to come together. And that is seen as having some sort of value in society. Yeah. 
and I suppose the way I kind of look at it is once you come together with another person, you almost have this social capital. And I'd love to know how you think then that capital is spent in society. Like how do people use that to a benefit or how does the system use that? Um, That is a fabulous question. So my my brain is exploding now. That is excellent. I suppose, and you're absolutely right, there is enormous social capital in this thing called a romantic relationship. Mm. And I think it does a couple of things. And I suppose the thing that I was focusing on is the way in which um, it, it denigrates other types of relationship. Yeah. So you'd, you'd often hear, and I think this is really damaging, um, the way in which romantic relationships are given a higher status and that people who aren't in those relationships are expected to understand lesser treatment. So you'd often hear people go, well, they're my partner, so I have to, you know, put them first. Mm. Um, That's a narrative that society has invented simply because we're told that that a partnership, the romantic partnership is the most important relationship and more important than friendship. Now, I suppose this is the piece that I really wanted to explore is why society would constantly tell us that romantic relationships are more important than friendships, because that's actually a very damaging narrative. Uh, and and this, this is entwined with this idea of being alone versus loneliness. So, you know, you'll often hear single people, um, and, and I'm a single person, so you'll often hear people say, uh, she has nobody, you know, in this. Yeah in this, this kind of pitying way uh, that, that, that is, is value laden, you know, in an enormous way that's almost hard to fully verbalize, but we all know what it means. Whereas a person might be single and have an enormous group of friends, that's huge it. friendship group, and is absolutely not alone um, and definitely not lonely. And, but I would have had a lot of clients Um, and who are in long-term relationships and speak about nothing except loneliness. Oh, I think, you know what, that's that's so, I must be one of the worst kinds of suffering. And I I really feel that you're right because we are fed a narrative that if you're in this romantic relationship, you'll never be lonely again. And in fact, the reality of it is that a lot of people in romantic relationships are lonely simply because... It is unrealistic in itself to expect one person to fulfill all of your needs. But we're also in a society that denigrates friendships. So we're kind of told we have to find one person to fulfill all of your needs forever. It's a madness. And then we're we're kind of expected to let go of friendships. So that's normal, but sure, they're married now. And You know, pre-COVID, the the World Health Organization had announced a pandemic of loneliness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in maybe two years pre-COVID. And what they found was that people who were were experiencing loneliness, that was having an impact on their health. The same, according to the World Health Organization, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That is how profoundly loneliness impacts somebody's physical health and mental health. Mm. Uh, At the time, there was also a concurrent pandemic, according to the World Health Organization, of of anxiety and depression. And of course, they are linked. 
you know and part of what I really wanted to, to express today especially in the lead up to Valentine's Day because people who are in relationships and feel this way people who are not in relationships but are told that they're lonely all of these things in relationships you're told you shouldn't be so you shouldn't feel how you're feeling that's gaslighting if you're not in a relationship you feel I should be in a relationship because the way I'm living my life isn't valid that's also gaslighting by society Mm. either way you have these two groups of people and their choices are taken away and I you know I, I would consider myself an activist in the space of reproductive rights and choice and and that's my feminism but the choice to be single the choice to not have children for women that's not a valid choice in our society we're told all sorts of incredibly toxic things incredibly damaging toxic things about being single and or choosing not to have kids um Mm -hmm. and then we're given an impossible set of competing ideals that we have to live up to um you know if you're in a relationship you you had better be sexy but don't be too yeah. sexy because then you're a slut, um, you know, and then you're a flirt or you're a threat to somebody else's partner. If your partner cheats on you, it's because A, you weren't sexy enough. Or B, if you even if you manage to be sexy, your partner cheats on you, well, then it's probably because you're a bit. Mm. Whose fault it isn't is the guy's. So it's all about these impossible things that are given to women. And if you're a mother, my God, you have to, you know, you have to look a particular way. You have to be a particular way. You have to, um, you know, have a, have a career or you're shamed for that. If you stay at home, you're shamed for that. If you have a career and you're not also baking all the things homemade and doing all the stuff, then you're shamed for that. No matter what you do, you're ashamed mm. for how you look, how you are, what you do, and, and all of these competing things. And that reduces, when society uses shame to reduce women's choice, and that is across the board. So in relationships and in choices around motherhood, which is why you'll hear me, have me back on for Mother's Day, and I will rant about Mother's Day. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely, please do. <laughs> Fantastic. It's the, it's, the same, it's the same conversation. All of these things reduce women's choices. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I I wonder then if taking all of those things to be true, because I agree with you, all of these things are set up to, I suppose, modify people's behavior. I wonder then is is loneliness, because you said so many nice, not nice, but important things about loneliness there. Is loneliness then the stick that society uses to beat us into submission into these things? So is it, yes, you were too sexy in your relationship. Yes, your partner left you or your partner cheated on you, but definitely don't leave because you'll get a belt of the loneliness stick. Yes. And this is really, really important. Delighted you, you said this, Kayla, because what happens is exactly that. So this loneliness stick, this shamefulness about being single is used to keep people, predominantly women, in relationships that are really, really damaging for them, Mm. profoundly damaging. Um, and we're, we're told, and, and, and I want to name this very, you know, openly. There's a narrative out there about dying alone. Yes. If you don't stay in your relationship, you'll die alone. And I think this needs to be said. We are all going to die alone. Unfortunately, yeah. that is the human condition. We die alone. That is what happens. However, we do not have to be lonely 
when that happens. And that's the conversation that we need to have because the real tragedy isn't death because that's inevitable for us all. The real tragedy would be to die feeling lonely, feeling isolated, feeling that you didn't belong, mm. feeling unvalidated and misunderstood and, you know, not loved. And love, we're told, has to look like romantic love. But real love is the things, Kayla, that you experienced when you found that magic supervisor. It's the thing that we find when we connect with another human being. And that connection can be romantic, you know, and, and involve sex and, you know, yay, if it does, that's fabulous. But there are other forms of that. It can be friendship. Absolutely. I was going to say it, that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and that's why it is so damaging when society tells us that we must give all of this social status to one type of relationship, which is the romantic relationship and very little social status. This idea that we can we have these friends that we can, you know, leave, take or leave when we need them. That's mm -hmm. not connection. And, and as a result, then if we are taking connection is a profoundly, it's almost a spiritual thing. It is a thing. It is magic. We don't always find it. Um, if, if you're lucky in your life, you'll find it a couple of times. It might look like romance. It might look like friendship. It might, it'll be with different people at different times, depending on where we're at. But my God, we have to hold on to that for dear life because that's the, that's what's meaningful. And when we're dying, that's what we remember. Mm. We remember the times we connected. Absolutely. I think that, I mean, all of these things are narratives and messages that are used to beat us into behaving in particular ways in society. And the, the alternative then is that, um, and we know that this is, you know, we know this, this happens a lot, is that people, particularly women, stay in relationships that are so toxic for them. They put up with things in romantic relationships because that they would never dream of putting up with from friends because we know how to, to negotiate friendships. We were told that, but mm. in relationships, women are kind of, and another thing, and now, my God, listen, you'll never shut me up now, but as we're talking about this, there is a terribly toxic thing that was put out by the patriarchy to tell women, particularly the relationships are hard work. And ladies, you better, if you want to be in a relationship, you better be prepared to work hard because relationships are hard work and I cannot say this enough they're not they shouldn't be and they if they're be. hard work then you are in and I'm banging the table now I'm sorry and I just realized that you wrecked the sound but no, you're um, fine. if your relationship is hard work then you really have to have a think because they shouldn't be they should be fun you should be looking forward to seeing the person you should be thinking about oh my god I'm gonna, this is going to make the person laugh and I'm going to send it to them or tell them or whatever you should be saying to yourself oh listen I can't wait for whatever because I get to spend time with this person and we're going to have great fun that's connection and that's the thing that makes you feel like a queen in the world so mm, it doesn't matter whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship but if you don't feel like a queen in the world, um, when you're with the person and you feel like you constantly have to really make this effort, oh my God, even seeing it is bringing down my energy. Why would we do all of that work? And it's where we, we inhabit as women a world 
in which women are told we have to do all the work. And I think after COVID, very clear to a lot of women that we're doing all the work with none of the power, none of the status, um, and for no thanks whatsoever. And also we get blamed for everything. So I think I think we're in a moment. I think as well, Karen, like just hearing you talk to Jesus loads firing off in my head now in so many different angles. But um what's kind of I suppose a relationship maybe not working, so to speak, is almost translated for say the partner or the partner splitting or whatever. So say if it's me, that it's a failure within me. So like, oh, people see me as a failure. It's almost internalized, isn't it? Um, and I even think of like, you know, the greatest stage I find uh, is weddings, you know, the plus one invitation for the around tables and then all oh, that creators there on their own, you know, and it's this, you can really see where it plays out at weddings. Like I really think you can, but another narrative that's out there, I think is that, um, you know, oh geez, if we end this relationship now, we're going to break up our family. What about the kids? You know, it's going to be detrimental for the kids. Like the reality is kids know when a thing isn't working. They would be so much happier with two happy, satisfied yeah. parents living yeah. separately, living their best lives than they would be living miserably. And I, I think that's another weapon people are beat with. I am. That is so important because that's those are the two things that people say, I don't want to die alone and the kids. Um, and the kids thing is really important because and it's something particularly that's visited uh, at women's door. Uh, the idea being that, oh, you know, if you leave, you need to stay for the kids because, of course, everybody's emotional safety lands on women's door to their detriment. And women are always told almost from birth, don't put yourself first. That's selfish. Um, and so, God, it takes a lot of work to, to unpick those narratives. But what's really interesting and important is what the evidence says, what the literature says, which is really clear. It's exactly Katrina, as you said. The literature says that kids do better with adult caregivers who are happy. There's, yeah. It's unequivocal. And it, the kids do not do better in households where the adult caregivers are unhappy. They do not. Not only do they not do better as kids, but when they grow up, they've had no role model for happiness as an adult. And so what happens is they recreate those patterns because they've never seen what, it likes, what it's like to be a happy adult. They don't know how to do it. So actually, it's, it's, this is a powerful piece of, of information because what it tells us as adults is that we have, if we have children in our lives, we actually have a moral duty to make ourselves happy so that they will know how to do it for themselves. But exactly. that requires yeah. a lot of, of unpicking of these toxic things that are told to women about being selfish. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. As Katrina said, I suppose every time you, you start talking, more fireworks are going off in my brain and it's it's really really interesting I suppose just just to bring it back just for a second to I suppose there's there's a, a thing on careers there as well but dying alone I wanted to bring it back to the dying alone thing because I thought it was really interesting when you said it I watched a little it's no secret to anybody who listens to this I spent too much time on the internet and on TikTok but I saw an interview this morning with Amy Winehouse where the interviewer was saying to her, um, and you said you wanted to retire by the age of 30. And Amy Winehouse is like, I never said that. And then they brought back the little snippet of where she said it. So right. she was like, oh, okay, yeah, well, I suppose I want a family. I want to get married. I want to have children because I don't want to die alone. 
So wow. she equated ending her career at a certain time with this will mean if I give up what I love, I won't have to die alone. When in reality, the real thing is one partner in the relationship is going to die first, which means the other person is going to be left alive, meaning we're both going to die alone. So it's it's just really interesting the way you put it. And then I suppose, because I'd love to hear your take on this, with women and careers in the relationship and how much is expected there. So if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, I'd love to hear. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, first of all, um, how very sad for Amy Winehouse. That, Super that, sad. Oh, and, and, and actually, I feel kind of like, I feel, I feel sad for, for all women. Um, when I hear things like this, because we are all told that we, it's, it's like we're giving all these competing messages. We're told, of course, you can be whatever you want. Of course you can. That's, of course, that, you know. Um, but, you know, you, you need to do it all at the same time. Because, like, so have, <clears throat> have kids, of course. It's easy. Everyone has kids. And have work, of course. But Jesus, you know, ladies, be thin. Make sure your house is it looks well. Do really well in your career. Your children better be high achievers too, or else you'll be blamed. Um, Have a TikTok channel. Like this, yeah, exactly. It's these impossible things, and then also this idea that you know we have to, we're going to die alone. This is it's it's there's such you know I, I think I'm just getting pulled all around the place with what you said Kayla because I I find it quite emotional um you know we're all women in the world who have been told these terrible terribly damaging things mm. and I'm always brought back to what the fantastic Panty Bliss said in <clears throat> their amazing talk that time in you know in 2014 when they said you know we're all a little bit homophobic because we were brought up in a homophobic society and I would say we're all a little bit misogynistic because we're brought up in a misogynistic society and it's really really hard to unpick those things and really difficult as women in contemporary society uh, the way in which the patriarchy tells us yeah be all things but if you're not all things it's your fault it's because you're lazy or you're not working enough or you know, sleep, ah! and also you should have kids, and you should love every minute. And if you don't love every minute, well, as a woman, there's something kind of wrong with you. So mm. maybe check your mental health. Um, which is which is all to me. And and then we also get blamed for everything. We get blamed for everybody else's failures. And sometimes I feel we haven't really moved on terribly far from um, being called witches which was effectively, you know, the way in which women were kind of controlled and shamed several centuries ago. Mm, Some days I feel that we are all still being called some version of witches. It it sounds, the words are different. You know, we're we're told we're unhinged. We're told uh, be crazy. Uh, We're told all of, and, and indeed, some of us are still called witches. Um, very high profile, Mary Lou MacDonald, Deputy Mary Lou MacDonald was called a witch in the one of the, the national newspapers there about two years ago. Mm. So high profile, confident, powerful women, they do it because they trick, somehow trick people and use their magic to do it. And all of that is blaming, blaming and shaming women. So I, I kind of feel I've, I've gone off away from what you said, and I really apologize. But I think one of the key things is we're constantly 
in that narrative that women should do X, Y, or Z. There's a formula to be happy. And if you don't follow the formula, well, then you're not going to be happy. You're going to be sad and lonely and pathetic and you'll have no friends and it's all awful. And you'll be, maybe people will invite you kind of as a, like a sympathy invite, like the wedding thing. And then you're there and it's all embarrassing and God help us. But the reality is, and the reality being the evidence, the evidence shows a lot of very different things. First of all, the evidence clearly shows unequivocally that single people report higher levels of happiness, personal happiness, than people in relationships. Mm. Now, why is that? Um, and, and I can tell you this, they also report being less lonely. So turns out that single people put more time and effort into friendships. They're more involved in the community. They do more projects. They travel more. They get involved in more passion projects all of which embeds them in community. And we know what is the most protective factor for mental health. It is being part of things that are bigger than yourself, involved in the community. So it actually turns out single people do far better. They're less isolated. So what's really interesting is that we have this incredibly competing narrative that is against what the literature says. All parts of the literature doesn't harm children. Single people are happier. We're still embedded in this toxic narrative that says that women should stay in relationships regardless of how bad the treatment is. Now, who benefits from that? Yeah. I think as well, like, you know, when I look at child trauma and stuff, uh, ball becomes up a lot, attachment theory. And uh, I suppose, as we all know, his, his thing is, you know, you attach your primary caregiver and then later in life, that's going to come out in such a way and develop in your primary relationship. But there's very, I suppose that's on the basis, it's the assumption you're going to have this one amazing relationship, you know, yeah. that's going to kind of fix you. Uh, yeah. This whole like you're going to go on now and marry your father kind of a thing, you know, someone that reminds you of your parent, your parents, or your siblings or whatever. But it doesn't really talk about attachments to friends and like we've loads of friends and like, you know, they might have, yeah, whatever attachment style. But I mean, when we have, say, if I have a secure attachment style in general, when I'm with them, you can see it regulates them and it calms them. And, you know, it does play out in friendships as well. And I, I think that's really important as well. Of course, we're, we're told, I mean, this idea that we find a romantic partner and that's us set up for the life, for our whole lives, that's madness. And it's, it's actually based in a time when you know, life expectancy was much less. Yeah. You know, like uh, when I separated from from my husband there a couple of years ago, um, a very good friend of mine said, you know, in an earlier time, you'd have had a really successful marriage. It's just that one of you would have died. Like we were together. For, <laughs> we were together for 22 years. And um, that's a really successful marriage. <laughs> but we th- th- we're, we're told we've got these social structures like marriage that's based on us having much shorter lives and not changing as much. So society has changed completely. We're living to our 80s and 90s. We're traveling the world. We don't just have one career the way we used to. We now have three careers, most of us. Um, and during that time, obviously, people change enormously. So you change your friends, of course, because people change. You change partners too. That's part of it. Not That's always, it. but but there's no rule. So to tell us that there's a rule and that you're doing things right if you follow the rule, that's just a reduction of choices, and it's not a reality piece. It couldn't be because society is so very very different. 
Um, but I think one thing that's really coming to the fore since COVID, now we're still in the area of anecdotal evidence because it's too soon really for, for too many publications. But we're seeing this coming out of a number of places. So things like um, family law practices, citizens information, um, you know, counselors and so on. And what they're all starting to report is that there is an unprecedented degree of relationship breakup um, coming to the fore. And I feel that that is not surprising, given the last two years that we've all been through and the close quarters that people had to live in, and mm. also all of the structures that people used to support themselves were gone overnight. Yeah. You know, we couldn't meet anybody, we couldn't see our friends, we couldn't do any, we were stuck where we were, unmoving for, for long periods of time. And I can tell you, it shone a light on what was happening. And we it shone a light on things, practices in the, that we probably were making ourselves too busy to see or to, to really, but when you're there 24 seven um, and we're hearing huge amount of women, particularly whose partners at the start of COVID and everyone working, start of COVID the partner disappeared upstairs, closed the door into the bedroom and did their eight hours of work. Meanwhile, the female partner, the woman partner is downstairs also doing her eight hours work, but also homeschooling the kids, feeding the kids, entertaining the kids and doing their job, the job of teachers and the job of care, childcare, all at the same time. Yeah. And that has had a profound impact on women's mental health. And I think that women are tired of that. Yeah. And I, I think it's unsurprising that this has happened. There's just just to give um, a plug to when you were talking there, the one thing that kind of came into my mind was COVID's women's voices on Twitter. Um, they are fantastic. And Amazing. I learn, you know, and I, I yeah. learn from them still all the time through Twitter. Yeah. Um, but basically it was that the the biggest part of the caregiving role ended up with the women throughout COVID. Yeah. Yet when we're making decisions on yeah. COVID and how to tackle it, women's voices aren't included. So it was completely counterproductive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I just saw an opportunity to give those ladies and people oh, yes. um, because they're wonderful. The other thing I wanted to say is this is really, really interesting for me in what you're saying about we have this one relationship and we're seen as almost clean. If you're seen as having lots of relationships, you are seen as a slut or the male equivalent of that. And one thing I see on TikTok all of the time, I'm sorry to keep going to TikTok, but no, my research is yeah. online and digital stuff. So yes. what I see is people sharing videos of when your love interest has only ever had one relationship and can't do long term red flag. And then you see this other cohort of videos that are saying when your love interest has had seven relationships in the last year, red flag. So it's like, OK, what's the magic number? Like, what do you want? Somebody who is clean or somebody who has experience in being in relationships and can clearly, I suppose, sustain long term relationships. So what's what's like, the magic thing here? What's what's wrong with someone that could have like, I think this is this whole thing, right? If a marriage breaks down, oh, my God, it's an unsuccessful marriage. I hate that word. What's wrong with having like three successful marriages? Nothing. <laughs> And you know what? I love this. And you guys know I absolutely love talking about uh, sex and sexuality and all. And this is so important. So like the first thing, I suppose, what we, we move away or we have been moved away by society from looking at the quality of connection. And 
um, we're, we're kind of really into box ticking. And that's why the marriage thing, you know, oh, my God, every failure. And, and the thing is, very often when marriages fail, the woman is looked at. And that's very I mean, that's that's part of why women want to stay in relationships, because they are blamed when something happens, <laughs> you know, they're blamed if the uh, the partner um, cheats, they're kind of blamed because maybe, you know, they let themselves go or something. Um, and they're, you know, the other woman is very often blamed because she maybe she tricked the guy or, you know, but the problem is what we what we don't look at is the behavior of the guy. Um, now you said about the male equivalent of this, and I actually disagree. I, I don't think that there is a male equivalent in terms of the appropriate sexual number because men are not slut shamed in mm. the same way that women are because men are actually given higher status. Praise, yeah. And they're because it's it's linked to kind of hegemonic masculinity and toxic masculine norms that men be sexually assertive and aggressive, actually. Uh, whereas women are expected, if we're looking at sexual scripts, women are expected to be a little bit meeker, um, a little bit subordinate. Men are supposed to be dominant. So there's a lot of really competing, difficult sexual scripts. Um, for women and uh, even knowing how to navigate that space I Jesus I have no idea how how young women navigate that space <laughs> it's, very, it's impossible to navigate it as a 45 year old let me tell you um, so I don't know how young women but I but what I am aware of is although the nature of the the exact content of the scripts has changed since I was that age the mm. fact that there are competing scripts has not changed so there, you know, just to say about you, you said, what's the number? There's no number. There's no number for women. She's she's always wrong. She she's either had not enough partners, in which case, you know, she's there's something wrong with her, or she's had too many partners, in which case she's a slot, or you know, there and the thing is, it is not about the woman. It is about the way in which society constructs these impossible standards for women and that is that is a form of kind of social gaslighting whereby women are always feeling that they're wrong if things mm. are going wrong in the relationship it's their fault there is any number because of all of these crazy competing things we can choose one thing to fit our circumstance because they're all there do too much do too little and actually very often the narrative of too much is given to women and I think that this is really really damaging uh, women are very often told that they're too much mm. uh, too emotional whereas anger for men isn't considered an emotion uh, but for women it's considered emotion and too needy too loud don't be loud ladies taking up too, too much don't take up too much space physically yeah. don't Tall, don't be too fat don't laugh too loudly don't laugh too much don't eat too much um the laughing too loudly thing I know that when I was younger I used to have this this huge big laugh and several several times men said to me things like it's not that funny love and yeah. I internalized this kind of shame like oh my oh my god maybe I'm you know I I it's maybe it's not that funny and and you know I but this what this is what society does to women it has an enormous number of narratives and the po purpose of them all is to make us smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and quieter and meeker and don't if we stand up for ourselves then we're crazy and if we you know you even hear if even the women who stay in abusive relationships people go 
I would never stay in that. Mm. Oh, that drives me mental. Yeah. No matter what we do, stay or go, have sex, don't have sex, take our power, don't take it. No matter what we do, it's our fault and we're wrong. And we, you know, like if we get raped, well, what were we wearing? Were we drinking? Why weren't we at home? You know, come on now, let's let's look at that. Uh, Maybe women should stay at home. That was the narrative after Ashley Murphy. Maybe we all need to stay at home in the evenings, um, thus making it about our behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if if um, the extent to which we're blamed for absolutely everything astonishes me, really and truly astonished. And that's not getting any better. And I work in, as you know, I work in the political space a little bit as well. Um, actually, that's one of the hats I forgot to mention at the start. But what I see with high profile women and um, women who have any kind of a public profile is that they are blamed for everything because really powerful women make people feel uncomfortable. They are oh, yeah. doing the gender script right. They are and they are blamed for everything because they're expected to be all things for all people. And I think women in general are expected that. There is an entitlement to women's time, energy, emotional resources. We're expected to be mothers, comforters, listeners. Um, we're not expected to claim power for ourselves or time or give energy to ourselves. Mm. And I, I have gone on a complete rampage there and I don't know, I can't even remember the question. So I really no. I think you've you've stayed with it. Um, no, you have. You you you've stayed with it. I'm just wondering now. I suppose I'm getting curious because I know that a portion of our listeners would be in the LGBTQIA plus community, and I'm wondering how do these, or how would you say that these uh, social scripts play out in same sex relationships? That's really interesting to me. So you have, let's for example, here let's stick with women. You have two women together in a society that is typically built for and by men. So one thing that stands out for me, and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about sex and sexuality as well, because I think that's really important, especially from women. Like the sexual conversation is always dominated by the male perspective. But how do you think those scripts play out then when you have two women who should technically, as society says, be more submissive, quieter, how does that play out? I wonder. Can you I just or? say before, before, sorry now, Karen, but do you know one thing that drives you off my nut? People say to me and Kayla, who's the man in the relationship? The, Clearly, there isn't one. Otherwise, we wouldn't be. It's literally okay. the point. It's literally yeah, the whole point. It's literally the whole consensus here. Yeah. I think, I mean, it, it's so frustrating because what that it's it's more of the the same old thinking and it's not even old it's contemporary thinking but it's based on these models of how people should be um and it's this old hetero patriarchal uh, scripts about mm. being in the world so when you have an lgbt couple same-sex couple uh people go okay yeah okay fine that's grand but um but but how do I, where's my framework okay the only framework i have is of a heterosexual couple so they must be a heterosexual couple with vaginas you know yeah. they have, they have <laughs> yeah, no yeah, yeah. and and one of the things that i find i guess most exciting about 
queer theory, queer lives, queer identities, is this idea that, um, and I, I really, you know, I, I feel such a massive, I have to say, and I, I'm old, so I'll say it wrong, but I, I just a massive shout out to people identifying as non-binary. Mm -hmm. Because for me, they epitomize the, the struggle to break away from the old yes. heteronormative lives. This script that we were all told, if you're a woman, you do this, you be like this. If you're a man, you do this, and you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you, you come together and you do all this. And, and we have the non-binary community going, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's, I, I don't feel that. Why would I want to be this? Why would I want to be this? There's so much toxic crap about both. I want yeah. to build and forge something new. And I think that that is part of why the non-binary community represents such a threat to contemporary society and you've got the darlings of you know my pal peterson and so on who talks such a lot about um having a problem with having a problem with knowing how to uh, talk to non-binary people and so on and so on and so on because this is this is what it comes to we for, we we have forgotten that people are people in our rush to make them into the categories that we understand so they have to be male or female they have to be gay or straight they have to be mad or sane it's all of these you know incredibly divisive binaries you have to be single or in a couple and again there's a whole middle ground there there has to be a box doesn't there there has to be a box to put you in so i can understand you yeah oh my god it better be a binary because i can't go yeah it's not a, and the binary usually lands into okay and not okay and the mm. not okay sometimes i'm good enough to accept the not okay you know but there's a real martyrdom of like that's all right i'm okay i'm down with this and that is about the person that's about them going, I'm really woke. <laughs> yeah. But it's not about, you know, the people who are embodying this new space. And I think, I don't really know if this answers your question, but I don't, I think for me, it is about looking at ways, and this is relationships as, as well, and, and ways of living in the world, looking at ways that are not the same as what went before. So I I follow some people on, on social media and that, that have kind of forged new ways to be in the world. So um, like I love um, momunes. I don't know, have you come across momunes? But momunes are groups of women with kids who live together. And they, it's like- Oh a, yes, I've seen this. Yeah, it's like a, a commune. Amazing. The women are friends, friendship groups. Um, they mind each other's kids. They, you know, while, so some, some of them are stay-at-home moms for all the kids and some of them are, you know, but it, I love that Fantastic. because it's based on friendship, but it's also based on the reality of child rearing. Like I remember when I went back to work after having my second kid and, oh, I was tired because Dan did not sleep ever. And so I had two kids under three and um, my partner at the time traveled a lot. So I was mostly at home with them myself. And then I went back to work and I was just like a broken woman really in terms of tiredness but I remember being asked by a male colleague how was I doing and I said I'm really tired I said I'm really struggling now trying to get it on and he said you need a wife and I thought yeah I do 
uh, in the way that society constructs that. Yes, mm -hmm. I need another adult to stay at home and prepare everything for me because this is what he meant. He wasn't tired, even though his kids were a comparable age, because he had a wife and the wife did all the food. So he was never, you know, he never had to do a shop at six o'clock in the evening when he left work. He was mm. never, you know, trying to balance two small kids in the car and the shopping trolley, trying to get food and or, 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 all of those things. He just arrived home from his day's work to a meal and happy kids. And so I suppose for me, I mean, that's that old framework. But for me, when I think about, about the mamune, oh my God, you arrive back to a house where your mm. kids are taken care of by a loving adult and you're friends with the adult. So you have the laughs and the jokes. It's a dream. The dream. And then somebody has yeah. made your food and, you're, and you just have to sit down and eat your food and talk to the people that you love and enjoy spending time with. I mean, it is their dream and also I'm seeing increasing numbers of young people talking about living with their friends mm. and I love this I think this is magnificent friendship groups living together and and having involved lives this is for me this is queer lives in the way that I understand queer being to to find new ways to be in the world that kind of are a rejection of the old framework that work for us in, in modern society I just think it's and it, it's it's moving away from this old idea that we have to be in a monogamous heterosexual couple blah 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 box tick box tick happy you know that there are other forms of relationships and happiness out there if only we can kind of free ourselves from the old narratives mm, and it's it's amazing to hear you say that because I think it also links up with the mental loops people will jump through and yep. the mental gymnastics that people will complete in order to understand something as it is like yep. There's there's this great account on Twitter as well, and it's called Letters of Note. And in that you can read wonderful letters from all types of people throughout time that were written and sent. But one of the ones that always cracks me up is how historians painted Virginia Woolf as oh. this heterosexual woman who liked to write. And then all of a sudden, these really sexually charged letters came to the forefront that she was sending to a woman and all of a sudden historians were like yeah and they were best friends you know this is how much <laughs> of course they were yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Read, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know read Virginia Woolf's letter to her best friend about how much she missed her these letters were like I mean I was getting flushed reading I was like Jesus Christ you know there was no denying it that these letters were filled with with lots of different things love and, and companionship and sexuality and all these wonderful things but the mental gymnastics people will complete to deny yes. jesus yeah 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 and and this is i love that you brought in history because there are so many queer hist historical figures who've had their queerness completely eradicated from the yeah. story of their lives so mm. it's like particularly around women and and queerness like they, they're I think there was an, there's often an attempt to completely eradicate women. We saw very clearly in Irish revolutionary history that there was a, a really concerted attempt to completely eradicate women from, from that story. That was all dudes. 
But even the women who couldn't be eradicated, their queerness was eradicated. So there was several women of the original common Naman army who would have been very well-known queer women who did astonishing things, set up children's hospitals, were uh, solicitors, they lived together for their whole lives, they dedicated to each other. But as you said, they were just friends. They were roommates. Uh, they were, yeah. <laughs> Um, they just shared a bed because it was cold. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite revolutionaries is um, Countess Markovich, but her sister, and she was magnificent, but her sister, who's called Eva Gorbuts, was one of the original authors of queer theory. So a lot of contemporary queer theory is based on stuff that she published in the early 1900s with her lifelong partner that she met in Spain. They lived wow. together. They published this uh, periodical talking about queer lives. They, did, they had different language at that time, mm -hmm. but it was, it was very well known and they were really profound artists and creators of culture and they have both been utterly, almost utterly eradicated. Now, now authors and historians are coming to the fore and bringing these lives back in, like um, Mary, Dr. Mary McAuliffe on, in UCD. She does a lot of work on this, and I, I, I hope I'm not getting her name wrong, but she's a magnificent woman for his going to history and, and pulling out the queer lives that have been silenced. And locally, actually, uh, Sharon Slater, who's a fantastic local historian in Limerick, yes. she does the same in a really, really powerful way. She talks about women, and I include women who broke the mold and did not agree to live their lives within the framework of womanhood as it would have been, regardless of who they wanted to have sex with. But they refused to perform womanhood in the way that it was told to them at the time and they refused to be shamed and I think that there is an element of, of queerness in that too that I really feel is quite powerful mm, yeah definitely mm. it's 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 fascinating and Sharon Slater does lots of historical things that, yep. that fall into different categories and yep. she's wonderful on Twitter we'll we'll include her handle as well in the show notes but um there's this whole thing on on TikTok as well where young young queer people now are coming and, and young transgender people and are calling themselves gender benders where it's like someday I feel like this, someday I feel like that. And it's not really non-binary, but it's it doesn't have to be linear and it doesn't have to mm. be bookended yeah. um, with with either yes or no or straight or yeah. gay or whatever. So, yeah, um, I think throughout history, it's really, really interesting yeah. to go back and read about these characters and really kind of examine yeah. them and go, yeah, maybe that's what they're yeah. talking about. You know, I absolutely I love the idea of this generation coming up and unpicking those gendered uh, frameworks and, and using them it's such it's a powerful form of resistance mm -hmm. and it is and it is unsettling for the oldies you know it is like it because we are um socialized so profound so profoundly around gender um yeah. that it is challenging and it is and the thing is for since the dawn of time resistance has been challenging so, you know, like uh, in, the, in the 1960s, when you had kind of the, the second wave of feminism, those original women did not want lesbians as part of that wave of feminism, because whatever reasons that, that I never really could understand what they were talking about. But the thing is that the radical feminists of that time were the ones who said, yes, the lesbians must be part of feminism. Of course they must be part of feminism. And they knocked down and they made damn certain that 
Um, a part of feminism would be a woman's right to choose whomever she loves. Mm -hmm. And that is now, you know, a core part of feminism. But what's really interesting, I guess, um, is that a lot of those feminists from the 1960s that knocked down those walls are now what we call the trans exclusionary radical feminists who cannot accept that um, trans women are women and they have this essentialist notion of womanhood. So they refuse to accept trans women as part of contemporary feminism. And they are the same women who fought for uh, gay women to be included in the movement in the 1960s. So it's, you know, we have resistance as it comes is going to be the thing that unsettles us. And we either are able to reflect on what that means for us and why we're unsettled, or we become hardened in our position. And I yes. think, in, you know, at the moment, we're seeing a lot of people really solidifying into quite a, a brittle position of opposition. No, those people can't be involved. It has to be only these type of mm. people um, and the people that I give permission to. Whereas I see a generation coming up and they're like, yeah, listen, I'm, I'm taking, I'm making my own way forward. I know yeah. I totally reject your way of doing things. It's crap. And honestly, I don't blame them. Like who would want to be a woman? Honest to God, who yeah. would want to do that because of the way they're treated? I get it. And equally men are told they can't cry. Mm -hmm. I find that or, or be emotional and that they're only allowed to be angry. Like this is shocking stuff. And, and yeah. back, I suppose, to where we started about connection, there's all of these, these binary genders. They are so rigid that it is impossible to be really your authentic self because you're playing all these scripts and you're performing all these scripts. So how can we, no wonder there was a pandemic of loneliness because we're not allowed to be ourselves, our authentic selves, which, you know, might have nothing to do with gender, it turns out. Yeah. It's it's so interesting how all of these different things are kind of coming in and playing on the same soccer pitch, basically. Yeah. And I wonder if we were to bring all of what we just spoke about back to relationships and from your psychotherapeutic hat, what would you say to someone who is maybe looking at their relationship now and examining it and thinking all of the things like, God, Maybe I want to leave, but maybe I don't. If I don't leave, if, if I leave, I'm going to be lonely. Or what, what would you say to that person who's maybe spends more time evaluating their relationship than enjoying their relationship? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think for me, what it comes down to is choice. So we as adults in the world have to weigh up the reality. The reality is is many different things depending on, on who you are. So you might be weighing up your, your um, relationship and you might be making a decision and you will make that decision based on your, fa your family around you. Your, the, do you have kids? Do you not have kids? What stage are they at? What's your financial circumstances? Where do you live? Do you live beside friends? Do you live beside support people? Um, how, if you, if you did decide to be single, what would that be like? How would you arrange that? Um, you know, it, it is all about choice. So I think that when we unpick narratives, shameful narratives, we take away one of the sticks that you are used to beat people. And when that stick is taken away, then you can make an authentic choice. Now, somebody might decide, actually, you know what? I'm choosing to stay in this relationship. It's not everything that I want, 
but it's some of the things that I want. It mm-hmm. works for me right now. Now that's an empowered choice. You know, it might be that I stay in this relationship for A, B and C, but I recognize that I'm missing something. So I'm going to go and find that thing, maybe in friendship groups, maybe in the wider community. Or it could be that you have a really frank and robust discussion with your partner and you tell them that you're really unhappy and that you're lonely if that's the thing. And it might be that the partner says the same. And it might be that you then split up or it might be that you then come to a place where you go well let's have an open marriage Mm, yeah this this is this works we're great friends you know let's do this and I guess this is this is what I mean by choice this was said to me at the start of my training and I never forgot it when a person does nothing they do something and the something is that they are not changing they're deciding not to change where they're at Mm. So they are, but, but very often the damage is, is not done by saying to yourself, okay, I'm just, I'm choosing this for the following reasons. The damage is done when they stay where they're at, but they tell themselves that it's someone else's fault. And then they have a narrative, you know, an internal story where they're the victim and no happiness comes of that because there's, you know, power has been given away. So I suppose that's what I would say to people, choose. And the brilliant Lennon Doyle says it as she says everything brilliantly and better than anybody else. But she says, choose your tough. Mm. It is tough to choose to break up a long term relationship. And there is a lot of work to do. And it is tough. It is tough also to stay in a relationship that you are not happy in. Choose your tough. And I love Mm. that. I love that. No. Wonderful, isn't it? Because it actually puts the power and the choice back Mm. to you. That's one now. That that's a really good one. I'm gonna be thinking about that for the evening now. Yeah, yeah really, really good. So I suppose the the other question then I would have on relationships is if you were to give somebody advice who maybe hasn't been in a relationship for a while. So somebody who's not in a relationship now but wants to be in one is is exploring that landscape. What would you say as a psychotherapist to be cautious of going in? What I would say, I suppose is that women particularly are taught not to trust their instincts. We are taught to cede some power sometimes. And so the one thing that I would say, and it's nothing to do with with romantic relationships or, or otherwise, but I would say that a lot of the work I have done myself and, and when I'm working with people is about getting myself to learn and for people to learn, what our instincts are telling us. How do we feel? Now, women particularly are told to judge situations based on how other people are feeling. Mm. You know, they've had a party, everyone else had fun, then they think it was a success. Did they have fun? No, they were shattered. Christmas, is Christmas a success? Everyone had a great time. How was your Christmas? I am wrecked. I need another holiday. Those are the things that you often hear from women. And what it is, is that they're judging a thing from outside of themselves. Now, Mm. just to touch on sex again, women are also told the same thing about sex. Was it good sex? Well, you know, he came. Yeah. What about you? Oh, no, 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 no. I needed more of whatever. But he came. And so what we are, we over and over and over again, we're told to judge based on whether another person has enjoyed themselves. So I think that one of the key pieces of of liberation, actually, for women will be to, and and by the way, men are taught to judge things by whether they they enjoy themselves. The good sex, yeah, I came. 
and so on. Yeah. You know, was it a good party? Yes, I had a brilliant time and so on. It's it's a very gendered, very uh, coercive way of, of teaching men and women to be in the world. So I would say for me that one of the biggest, most liberating things to do in terms of all relationships, be they romantic, sexual, friendship, whatever, even with your family, your family of origin, whatever, trust your instinct. Your instinct will tell you, are you feeling joy? Are you feeling excitement? Do you feel like your best self? Or do you walk away from an interaction with that person and you feel shamed, worried? Yeah. Is your energy down? Are you second guessing yourself? Are you going, oh, Jesus, I said, oh, did they? Blah, 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 blah. Trust your instincts. If you're walking away from interactions with the particular person and you are full of joy, your energy is light, the world feels like a good place, you feel like a good person, then trust that and you'll know that that is the right place to be with the right person. Yeah, love that. That's brilliant. Yeah, I think we should definitely, if you would be open to it, bring you back for Mother's Day, because I think especially with the sexual thing and sexuality, I Mm. think there's a whole conversation there. Specifically, I I often hear some of my friends that are in heterosexual relationships around Mother's Day, almost like an orgasm is a Mother's Day gift. And it's like, Mm. is that a once a year thing for you or or that annual? (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, my friends will often say, yeah, it was fine, but they, they don't actually have a nice experience or it doesn't have to be always you know about the orgasm but even the experience wasn't really pleasant for them so I think we should definitely bring you back yeah I've loved this conversation well just to say I love this you know I would talk to you forever and I would be delighted to talk about Mother's Day um do you know the wonderful Margaret O'Connor she's a local psychotherapist who has set up a practice specifically aimed at working with people deciding whether to have children or not and she does a lot of advocacy work around the country for child-free women and you know the the state the the choice to be child-free and she's a fabulous feminist and so just to give you her name she's amazing and I know that you would love her she's just the most gorgeous person but she's I feel it's really powerful to talk about and to women who choose to be child free and mm. how liberating that is but also all of the shameful messages that they are given yeah, yeah very true yeah we'll, we'll include her in the show notes as well for anybody who's interested in reading more about margaret and i have two more really quick questions for you before <laughs> we finish up this is me being nosy what was the last book that you read okay so um I have read, I read, oh, and I can't remember the name of it, uh, The Queen's, oh, it's it's a, a, a piece of young adult fiction, and it has a gender reverse on, so it's like Game of Thrones with a gender reverse, so all of the warriors are women, the, oh. the, the, the person fighting to get the throne is a woman, the power lies with the woman, there is uh, the, the, uh, land ownership goes from woman to daughter and magic in it goes from woman to daughter mother to daughter and it's just it's fabulous and I absolutely loved it and I I actually love young adult fiction because you know what real life is so complicated sometimes it's very hard to know who are the goodies and who are the baddies mm. but in uh, young adult fiction you know it's really clear who the goodies are and who the baddies are and you can root for the goodies and you can hate the baddies and it's and it's 
you know, and I particularly love the idea that we've a generation coming up with this young adult fiction where you've got gender reverse expectation stuff. You've got the Hunger Games with Katniss mm. Everdeen kicking ass and got, um, and I know that Kayla, I'm sure we've talked about this, but you know, the, oh, she's the one, the, the Amber Spyglass, his dark materials. Oh my God, Kayla, have you not read? Farting. You haven't read his dark materials. Well, no, there you I am going to be no help here. <laughs> you have to read. You will lose your mind. It oh, I'm is excited. Trilogy of young, but but to be honest with you, it's not. It's adult. Most of the people who love it that I know are adults of my age. Mm-hmm. It brings in gender, sexuality, spirituality, existential stuff, oh, war, yes. social justice. It is everything. So. Brilliant. Yes, that's the one I'm going to recommend. His Dark Materials trilogy. Okay, perfect. That's I'm going to look into it straight away. And like I say, don't panic. We'll include links to all of these things um, in the show notes. Um, yeah, I don't think the the young adult genre gets enough attention in general. Um, one of the best books I've ever read in my whole life was The Book Thief, which is oh. from YA. Um, and it's it's just beautifully wow. written. And in oh, it's just a gorgeous book. My last question to you, is there anything you would like to plug, be that your Twitter, be that Together for Safety, anything you would like to plug, go for it. So two things, Uh, Together for Safety is the local organization that's working for legislation to bring in safe access zones around hospitals, clinics and doctors so that protesters won't harass vulnerable people going into hospitals for medical appointments. Uh, We're coming up to stage three of the legislation on Thursday. And in the meantime, we're just asking everybody at any point, if you could possibly ring or contact or write your local elected representative and tell them that you are, you know, it, this we need this legislation as a matter of urgency. So that's the first thing. And the second thing I'd like to plug is the directly elected mayor in Limerick. So this is coming up this year, we think, or early next year. The legislation is still being tweaked but we suspect it will be in the next 12 months. It will be a mayor that is elected directly by the people. So you can go to a vote and you'll go in, there'll be a list and you'll vote your for like a presidential election. We want to make sure that there are diverse voices, given that we saw what happened in COVID. We had all the decision makers were men. We want to make sure that there are diverse women, not just one woman, diverse women's voices from diverse communities. So we're working hard to make sure that, you know, women run. So if you were a woman listening to this and you would like to run, please contact me or Together for Safety or the Limerick Women's Network. And we will put you in touch with, with, you know, we will contact you, but mostly just encourage people in your life to run. Uh, you might have seen very recently that the Women for Election organization and the See Her Elected organization, both of who are very, very um, active on Twitter and social media, they are plugging this to, to under the hashtag count her in or count me in. And they are really trying to encourage women nationally to run because we will not change things until we get more diverse women into positions of decision-making power. Fantastic. Hello, you're some woman. Fantastic stuff happening. I don't know how you fit it all in. Um, we've, yeah, it's been just such a lovely and well-rounded conversation. I've really enjoyed it. So just thanks a million for, for spending the last more than an hour with us. We're so sorry for keeping you so Not long. At all. Thank you I so loved, much. Not at all. I loved every minute of it, guys. And thanks so much for having me on.
And if you want to follow Mental Health Hour, you can do so on Instagram, you can do so on LinkedIn, and you can do so on Twitter. And as always, thanks for having us. Bye. Bye.